Um, we have a very special speaker today. Um, it's just an incredible honor to welcome Dr. Gwen Coleman, who is the director of the Division of Extramural Research and Training at the National uh, Institute of Environmental Health Sciences at the NIH. She directs a group of over 80 NIHS uh, program staff and the management of 1,000 active research grants a year. I mean, wow. <laughs> Amazing. Um, she was the founding program, uh, program director for the Children's Center program and also the Breast Cancer and the Environment Research Program. And she oversees the implementation of another, uh, several other key pioneering programs that they have, including the Superfund Research Program and the Worker Training Program. And she's been a very important influential force in getting participatory research and community engagement methods going, and we know how important that is as well. And she's also a remarkably knowledgeable scientist. She's an environmental epidemiologist. She got her MPH at University of Michigan and her PhD at University of North Carolina. So we are absolutely thrilled to have you here, Dr. Coleman. Um, and we thank you so much for just everything you do for environmental health and everything you do to make our work possible. And just a warm welcome to Dartmouth and to the Norris Cotton Cancer Center. So, um, and then finally, I have to read from the required statements that Dr. Coleman does not have any financial interest. Uh, she does not intend to discuss off-label or investigated investigational uses of product or devices. She attests that she is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. And for CMA credit, CME credit, you must sign the CME form on your way out. So with that, again, I welcome Gwen. Thank you, Margaret, very much for that nice introduction. It's really a pleasure to be here. Margaret and I know each other for a long time, have worked together in many places and see each other annually at a number of meetings, and we've been talking about my uh, desire to come to this part of the country and to visit Dartmouth for some time. So it really feels good after, I think, three aborted attempts <laughs> to visit before to actually be here. So um, thank you for welcoming me and uh, for such a nice morning. And I look forward to the afternoon and tomorrow to meet with the rest of the faculty. Um, I'm going to talk about a number of things. So Margaret said, I, I don't know anything about off-label or investigational <laughs> drugs, so I'm clearly not going to be speaking about those. Um, but I, I was asked to, to think in advance about what I would talk about. It's always very helpful to focus your thoughts. And um, so here are the learning objectives that I put forward for the continuing medical education. And in addition to these things, I hope that the other thing that I'm able to impart after uh, today's lecture is an, a, a new um, appreciation and perhaps enthusiasm for uh, understanding more about environmental chemicals and other environmental exposures. I certainly am very passionate about that and um, bring enthusiasm to my uh, job thinking about uh, it, uh, public health through an environmental health lens. And, you know, if one, one of you um, catches that enthusiasm or several of you um, are able to incorporate some of the concepts that I'll talk about today into your work, I'll think that it was a great uh, trip and a, a lecture worth giving. So may not all know about the National Institute of Environmental Health Sciences, so I'll just spend just a minute telling you a little bit about us. First of all, we're one of 27 institutes and centers comprising the National Institutes of Health. And um, the one big difference is, is that all of the other institutes are in Bethesda, Maryland, and we have the privilege of being in Research Triangle Park, North Carolina. That's another whole story. If any of you are interested, I can explain that to you later. But the mission of our institute is to discover how the environment affects people in order to promote healthier lives. Our research budget uh, annually is in the $500 million range. Those are extramural funds going out. The institute's budget is over seven. 
about 800 million, um, and this includes our Superfund appropriation, which is separate from the regular um, NIH work. And we also have an intramural program, and, a, and the National Toxicology Program is housed within NIEHS, which makes us uh, unique. That means we have two intramural programs, and one of them is very uh, public health uh, oriented and mandated by Congress. And these are just research bullets uh, to show you the breadth. Our extramural program covers everything from uh, cellular molecular science all the way through toxicology, public health, epidemiology, community-based methods, and translational work that sort of gets us uh, through that whole spectrum and then back around, uh, and we take our work um, to both the, bed the bedside, the clinic, and to um, state and local health uh, uh, governing, and we also have a policy piece to the translation and impact of the work that our um, family of investigators across the country contribute to. The intramural program has a, a strong program, uh, especially related to cancer epidemiology. We've been involved in many um, large-scale epidemiologic studies, like the Ag Health Study and the Sister Study. We were the lab that discovered the BRCA1 gene way back. Um, we have strong programs in molecular carcinogenesis, epigenetics, genomics, structural biology, quite a number of different things that I think uh, dovetail with the interests of the scientists here uh, at Dartmouth. And the National Toxicology Program is really a testing program and uh, started as a bioassay-based uh, program with rodent bioassay. There's a huge uh, resource of um, information that has gone into various uh, reports on carcinogens about different chemicals. There's a nomination process. Um, and we're also transitioning to what we call TOX21, which is the greater use of high-throughput screening using a variety of assays to screen against large libraries of chemical compounds to try to understand the molecular basis of change and try to take that information generated in a new and different way and feed that into the regulatory structure for protection against the uh, ill effects of the chemicals. So what are we going to talk about today? So I want to tell you a little bit about what uh, we talk about when we talk about environment and uh, what our definitions are, um, how it impacts health at various stages across the lifespan. I'm going to do some shout outs about the research that we've supported here at Dartmouth College because we're so proud of all of that, the work and its impact. Uh, we're to speak about, um, as I said, the timing of exposure and what happens when you're exposed at different times. There'll be a little bit of work on cancer, and then I'm going to um, transition into a bigger, broader conversation about exposures, science, methodologies, new resources available to you as a scientific community, and then translating all of this to clinical practice and what physicians can bring to the table in terms of um, increasing their awareness and to speak with patients about the environmental causes of disease. And then I'll try not to talk so much that we don't have any time for question and answer, but that is usually a problem, so I'll try to keep it, keep it short. Um, so what do we mean by environment? Well, some people, you know, define the environment as anything that's not genetic, and that's, you know, it's helpful, um, and, 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 and so in some cases uh, very meaningful. Uh, NIEHS has a specific mandate. When we talk about exposures, we're talking about chemical, physical, biological exposures, and oftentimes we're focusing on things that other institutes are not. So um, although things like, uh, you know, medication use or physical activity or smoking, and smoking, of course, has lots of environmental chemicals in it, those are considered lifestyle factors by many in the field. It's not that we don't care about those, but we are here really to shine the light on environmental chemicals and radiation and other such exposures because they're not really being appreciated uh, through the funding sources at the other agencies. And the evidence that comes from our programs is really often used by the, um, the um, international bodies that regulate, like in the, in the EU, as well as the EPA. So we're really focusing on creating evidence for specific regulatory pathways uh, to protect the public around these, these chemicals. And why does it matter? Well, you know, we are uh, exposed to many things uh, in our environment, and our environment is broad. I'll talk a little bit more about the, the broadness of it. The vast majority of diseases result not only from our genetic susceptibilities, but how the environment interacts with genes. And uh, we are constantly trying to remind people that environment plays a major role and that we need to consider these. 
uh, both, both of these air avenues. The environment can also affect how people respond to medical therapies and also thus their inherent uh, abilities uh, to perhaps um, impact the progression of disease and their survivorship after certain cancers. Um, many cancer patients are very interested in environment and their diet, organic foods, things like that after their disease, and it, and it can help to modulate the treatment path that they're on. So, you know, there are some basic parameters in how the environment affects us. It's when you're exposed and the timing, how old and what, what uh, windows of susceptibility might be out there. There's the, your genetic background and how the genetic polymorphisms or susceptibility factors may impact your ability to metabolize and clear certain environmental exposures or the overall gene environment risk. The comorbidities you have. So, um, unfortunately, in this day and age, uh, people don't have one exposure and they don't have one disease. So, there's a lot of systemic effects that environmental uh, chemicals can have, and you can have multiple uh, health outcomes in a population and certainly at the individual level. And then, how lifestyle or the social determinants of health interact with environmental chemical exposures, sometimes in ways that we can control, and in some situations, unfortunately, in some environmental justice communities, in ways that we can't control. Uh, so, again, here's some shout outs. So, I I'm sure you all know this, but in case there might be somebody on the, on the video cast who is not familiar with the the Dartmouth Toxic Metal Superfund program, I just wanted to say that we've been pleased to support the program since 1995 so through several principal investigators and faculty. Uh, currently, the program is focused on arsenic and mercury, and um, specifically uh, research that looks at arsenic uptake, transport, and storage uh, in the diet, specifically in rice, effects on lung disease by inhibiting the immune system, the uh, arsenic's effect on uh, some parameters during pregnancy, and then in our environmental sciences part, because this is an interdisciplinary program of biomedical and non-biomedical sciences, methylmercury production and fate in response to multiple environmental factors affecting accumulation in estuary organisms. There's a research translation and community engagement component to this, and we, we support quite a number of uh, students and postdocs in the training component of this, and um, there's an, uh, a translational piece, and Dartman has done a really nice job of producing some videos and some materials that are not only used here in New Hampshire, but have been used across the Superfund programs and in our broader environmental public health communities. So thank you, researchers in the Superfund program, for those contributions. The next program, as, as Margaret said, is one near and dear to my heart, as I was the founding de uh, program director for our Children's Center program, which uh, started uh, in about 2000. Um, in from 2010 to 2018, Dartmouth has had research funding, first as a formative center, a sort of a baby center in our children's program, growing up to be an older child into an adult center. Uh, and we're, we're really happy to have uh, seen the growth and development of the Children's Center work here. And this one is really looking at how environmental exposure, specifically arsenic and metals, um, affect fetal development, childhood, and uh, with a focus on childhood Im immunity, growth, and neurological development. Again, this program has a community outreach and uh, a center at core part as well, and you're engaging uh, parents and providers in the conversation about risks of uh, ex chemical exposures, metal exposures early in life, and turning that into information that hopefully physicians, other healthcare providers, stakeholders, and parents can use uh, as they are, um, you know, dealing with their own children's growth and development. Okay, so I want to focus again on this early life theme. Again, this is work that's being done here currently at Dartmouth, but across many of our uh, uh, research centers and in our R1 portfolio at NIEHS. And this is the, um, the effects of early life exposures or the um, developmental origins of health and adult disease. So if you're exposed during pregnancy and the fetus is exposed through the mother's exposures and the father's exposures, then there are different time points in your lifetime where you can see the adverse effects, so whether it be during childhood, during puberty, reproductive life, middle life, or later life, there could be health outcomes. But also, you can take that parameter of early effects and change it up. So childhood may be a very important window of timing 
for later life exposures. Puberty is a program area that we've been studying for some time in terms of breast cancer development. If you're exposed as an adolescent going through pubertal changes, what does that mean as your adult later risk, et, et cetera? So a very important thing. As I said, the DOHAD is a field unto itself, uh, really started from nutritional uh, impacts early in life and looking at um, uh, adult diseases. And we've expanded, we've actually done a, quite a lot of work with the scientific community by engaging them in expanding the factors that we want to consider. So nutrition, environmental chemicals, and stress are three really powerful predictors of adult disease, and we're trying to bring all of that together. So it's not that it only disrupts development, but may affect uh, you know, functional changes in different organ systems that may not be seen until much, much later, and may be the causes of uh, adult uh, conditions. There's a whole list of a variety of different health outcomes that can be attributed to a variety of exposures uh, early in life, uh, and, and not just cancer, but um, in many other domains. And more, uh, more work in this area you know, is really coming out every day, and this, this is a real uh, opportunity for continued research support. So since I'm at the Cancer Center, uh, working with people who are cancer researchers and cancer clinicians, I wanted just to drill down a little bit more into environmental exposures and cancer. I don't think this is a new area, but I think it, it could be considered a little bit of an underappreciated area. There's actually been three federal, federal reports that have come out in less than 10 years, which really highlight the fact that we are underappreciating the impact of environmental chemicals on risk of adult or childhood and adult cancer. First was the, the, cancer, the President's Cancer Panel, which is an organization that's administered by the NCI. And that report really took the research community to, and the translational community to task, saying that the true burden of environmentally <laughs> induced cancers has been grossly underestimated. And they strongly urged action to reduce people's widespread exposure to, camp, to carcinogens, so there's a prevention research opportunity there. There was an awareness opportunity, so in terms of environmental health literacy, we may know that there are certain bad actors in our environment, but we're not making the link to that they're carcinogens and then they're uh, responsible for causing cancer. And then, um, you know, the translational potential, so how does that factor into every, everybody's um, uh, medical care, and are we talking about it enough, and is the public aware that um, there should be a focus on this as, a, as an area. The CDC ATSDR had a, uh, an activity that uh, also engaged around, was called a conversation about chemical exposures in public health, and here was called for more emphasis on preventing harmful chemical exposures, reforming outdated and effective policies, promoting health, and improving our ability to make or engage in difficult decisions, often in the face of uncertainty. So part of the wrap here is, is that a lot of the research that is, we know uh, is seemingly causative is done in animal models. And there's a reluctance to translate that work directly to the human situation. And there are lots of social, political, and economic factors that keep us from feeling better and have more confidence in this research. And, and we know that there are difficulties in doing the research in human populations. We can't do randomized controlled trials to dose people with different things. That would be highly unethical and impractical. And so how do we pull all that evidence together and use it for protection? And the last activity was one that I was involved with for three years. And this was around breast cancer and environment. So there was a, a, a congressional bill passed suggesting that we look more deeply into the research base for uh, when, whether environmental chemicals were causative for breast cancer, what was the state of the literature, and what could the federal government do in terms of organizing research. And the number one recommendation from that work is that the federal government does not spend enough money on prevention research. Broadly defined prevention research, and we're talking mostly primary prevention here, because when we talk about environmental exposures, we want to get them out of the environment and we want to take away the opportunity for contact with the individual or exposure. We don't want to see the disease happen and then change the course based on some small changes in your environmental exposures. We really want to take those drivers away as much as we can to prevent and avoid the disease. 
So um, just a few examples. The, the World Health Organization, through their International Agency of Cancer, uh, reviews the literature on many uh, chemical carcinogens and makes recommendations about what's known about them. And um, in 2013, quite recently, they classified outdoor air pollution as carcinogenic to humans. It seemed like a no-brainer, right? Didn't we already know that? But we needed to amass a certain amount of evidence to have the confidence. And that evidence, there was a lot of uncertainty and a lot of bounds there, and a lot of, everybody wasn't willing to accept that. But when an organization like this makes a strong statement, it gives you purpose and makes you think about this. Outdoor air pollution causes lung cancer. They say that. So cigarette smoking is not the only cause of lung cancer, and air pollution really has an impact, especially in places like the developing world where air pollution has not come down and gotten cleaned up in ways that it has in the United States or in Western society. Another example, I think that's an interesting one that's taken many years to unfold is, with, is benzene exposure and the risk of adult and childhood leukemia. So the initial ideas came from occupational studies, high-dose exposures to workers who got uh, adult leukemia, um, and then how did this work? And is it, it, was there environmental risks or was it only in the workers? So we did see other studies um, that linked uh, benzene workers excuse me, benzene exposure to workers. Then there was a lot of molecular work done at the University of California, Berkeley, to define the um, mechanism of action for, for, for benzene and to look for places where you could intervene in that pathway and try to think about that. Then they went back and they thought about, well, what's the timing of this exposure and when did this leukemia risk occur? Was it when you were already a worker or was it earlier in life? And they found that there were chromosomal changes in the, in the workers and people who are environmentally exposed, but in the children's studies of, in the studies of childhood cancer, they actually used dried blood spots from when the babies were born and they found those same chromosomal changes that they found in the workers earlier in life. And so then what does that mean? If you're already set up because of some chromosomal changes and then you have exposure to benzene or other environmental risk factors, how does that change your trajectory to perhaps become um, you know, more at risk of, of leukemia in ways that you wouldn't have thought about? So it's a classic example of gene-environment interaction. Quite a number of candidate genes have been explored in this, and then now um, there's actually been work uh, done on GWAS work looking at um, some incremental findings of uh, exposure metabolism, genes, and um, changes in blood uh, assays, uh, not necessarily waiting for the case control work, which I think is a, another great example of uh, looking at intermediate markers and not necessarily waiting for the burden of cancer to occur. Okay, so now I want to really talk, spend the rest of my time talking about exposure and exposure assessment. Something that, um, you know, as an epidemiologist, uh, struggled for 30 years trying to, you know, figure out the best way to expect, assess exposure in individuals and in populations, trying to get on the technology bandwagon, um, moving as molecular epidemiology, molecular toxicology is moved, trying to bring those principles into exposure assessment to, in order to, you know, definitely think about prevention think about classifying people who are at higher risk, and then, of course, to assess the um, overall risks. So exposure is really complicated, and it takes many diagrams of multiple colors to be able to explain all of this. And, you know, I could just spend my entire hour going through the, these schematics, and I won't, so don't worry. But there are some really important things. First of all, we're all exposed to many chemicals all the time. You know, they're just ubiquitous in our environment, and depending on where you live and where you work and where you play, you know, some days your exposures may be higher and some days they may be lower. They come from many sources, air, water, soil, food, consumer products, medicines. All of these have, some of these things have toxic <coughs> properties, and, you know, we come in contact with them in lots of different ways. Uh, when we're exposed, I spoke to that before, become way more critical in our understanding of the effects of exposures to consider when exposure assessment should be done, how often it should be done, how do you characterize the changes in your exposure over your lifespan, and how do you think and conceptualize all about that when you want to use that information in epidemiologic work or in public health practice, you know, because we ultimately want to take that work and figure out how to um, work with people to make sure that they're protected. 
Um, and then what are the targets of our exposure? Well, you know, in the old days, we just thought about the root, and then they went in the lung, but now we're really thinking about, well, which pathway is that exposure specifically targeting, and can we measure the, the perturbations in the pathways through omics technology and other ways in order to really get a fine granularity of what that exposure does across the different points in time. Precision around exposure is critical. It really helps genetic research to be very precise and be able to measure things specifically. You know, for constituent genetics, you only have to measure once. It doesn't change much. But for epigenetics, another kind of genetic analysis, you need to measure things multiple times because there's some um, ability for that to change over time. So exposure assessment is quite similar in that regard. So the traditional met met methods of exposure assessment. From all time, you know, we've been doing questionnaires. We've asked people what do they, uh, what are they exposed to. We ask, we come up with cute ways to try to get at exposures that maybe you're not even remembering. You know, we might have done some observational work in people's homes, opening up under the sink, counting the chemicals. I was involved in studies where we, we did that kind of work. We, you know, you can pull products off the shelf, you can do market basket analysis, you can read the labels, you can try to figure out a lot of ways. But there's a lot of misclassification involved there and a lot of uncertainty around those measures. So we want to move forward. There's environmental monitoring that a lot of our regulatory agencies do. The EPA has a very broad air pollution monitoring system, which is awesome data and has been used for epidemiologic purposes for a long time. But it's measurement up here and out there, and you may not be in that space at that time when that measurement's taken, so it may not really reflect your exposure. So we want to move to more personalized exposure assessment, the same way we want to move towards personalized genetics and personalized medicine. There's a track here that needs to come together. So we've looked at sensor development, and we've invested broadly in the development of sensors using your cell phone, using a monitor, using a card size pack with a, a pump attached for air pollution measurements. And we, we have, I think, a good suite of sensors that are out there that could be worn, that could be put in a backpack, that could be put on your desk to get at mostly airborne related exposures. And these, I think, will prove to be very important as we're able to incorporate those into our lives. So think about the Fitbit that you might be wearing. It would be great if that Fitbit had an air pollution sensor or some other sensor for uh, volatile organics or something like that so that, you know, as you're tracking your steps, you would then have data about your environmental exposures and you might be able to decide to take a different route to work because you knew that your Fitbit was, you know, freaking out when you went down a particularly industrialized road ways to, you know, sort of take that information and make it available to people so that they really have a greater awareness of their work in addition to the research purposes of it. So there's a lot of other tools that are being developed like that. This is also true for physical activity, for diet assessment. So it's not only a chemical thing, but I think stressor, I mean, sensor technologies will help us identify many stressors and will, I think, very soon become part of sort of our exposure economy. Now, other methods of personalized exposure characterization, well, this means measuring stuff in our body. So through the collection of biospecimens, we have developed methods for biomonitoring, and then this will lead us to better characterization of the exposome, and I'll talk much more about that as we go. So last night at dinner, we had a lovely conversation about measuring things through questionnaire and data elements in epidemiologic studies, and I said, well, how many of you use common data elements to measure critical things when we want to bring environmental epidemiology studies together? And, you know, there's a little bit of a reluctance to do that across, not just at my dinner table, but across the, the epidemiology community. Because, you know, we, we are comfortable with the way we ask our questions. We're comfortable with the communities that we're reaching out to. We want things to be very specific customized and specialized, but then we can't combine that data later, and it's very hard to harmonize it after the fact. So the National Institute of Genomics Research uh, put together this Phoenix project. If you haven't, not aware of it, I would recommend you go to this website. This environmental exposures is just one of about 80 different common data elements, and basically what this tells you is, if I'm going to do a study and I need to measure exposure using questionnaire or other key measurements, what is that battery that I need to have in my work? 
because I not only for my own work, because I know that my collaborator will also be using those same procedures and protocols. And so when I want to look at their data and I want to share it with my data, we'll all be asking the questions the same way. So this is just a first attempt in the environmental world to create some momentum around the common data element idea. Biomonitoring, as I mentioned, is measuring chemicals in human tissues and fluids, mostly urine and, um, and blood. The, the Center for Disease Control has a national biomonitoring program that many of you may be aware of. There's a national report card for biomonitoring, and you can go online and you can look at reference, background, date, you know, distributions of about 350 chemicals. So if this is something you're you're working on in your population and you want a standard to refer to, you can compare to the NHANES data and look at the, the distribution of, as I said, many chemicals there. So we want to think about targeting or gathering data on a variety of chemicals and chemical metabolites in our body. And targeted exposure assessment, like biomonitoring, is one way to do that. For the most part, people who are using this for other things than surveillance are picking one or two chemicals that they care about, and then they're sending their specimens to a laboratory and getting some measurements. Usually, it's expensive. There's precious bio uh, specimens you don't want to waste, so you're only you know, taking one small aliquot, and you're only getting a little piece, a very small snapshot on a very limited set of analytes. There's another kind of exposure assessment called now suspected analysis. This is very new. Um, and this is really a targeted approach, but to a broader suite of chemicals. And so there have been people who are using data that's out there from CDC in a somewhat agnostic way, like looking across all chemicals on data that's available and trying to impute some risks for certain outcomes. You may have read some works by Sharak Patel, who's at Harvard, sort of proposing this EWAS approach. That might be considered an example of suspected. And then the last part is targeted. So why are we looking under the light post for things that we think we know cause stuff? We're not, not always finding that they cause stuff. Well, maybe because we're not looking broadly enough. So what if you didn't identify those chemicals up front, but you just had your specimen and you looked to see what was in there? A larger profile of all exposures that could be measured, would be measured, and then you could figure out which ones are important. And then, so in the, and I'll show you that in these approaches, there are things that you didn't even think about, and you might have to identify what they really are. So an example of the targeted analysis around arsenic is done by uh, Rebecca Fry at the University of North Carolina. Here she's uh, measuring arsenic levels the traditional way in urine, but then she's looking at umbilical cord. She also did environmental measures of of um, arsenic in the water. And then she's using omics technology to look at protein expression assays to sort of define this suite of responses that arsenic might have. So that might be a considered a targeted because she's looking only at one analyte, but she is looking at a number of different exposure outcomes. Now for untargeted analysis, we're, we can take advantage of the new explosion in tools like metabolomics. And here, it's an emerging field of research for characterizing the unique chemical fingerprints or the metabolite profile that um, really impacts a variety of cellular processes. These profiles integrate effects of exposome on, from the diet, from, expo from lifestyle, from genetics, and also from all of these sources of the chemicals that I mentioned before. And you see this integrated measure of um, a profile of peaks to say, this is what's in your body right now at this time. It's a very high content analysis of the biological specimen, and it's really meant to help identify unique met metabolic signatures that are tied. It can be used for disease development, but I like to think of it as a new possibility for an exposure marker as well. So Dean Jones at the Emory University, who's part of one of our NIEHS Centers of Excellence, that center is focusing specifically on exposomics. And he's developed some untargeted metabolic analysis where he can measure 44,000 metabolites in a single specimen with a single run through his mass spec. That is a lot of data, right? A lot of peaks and a lot of things that generate um, high-dimensional, high-content data, 
but we don't necessarily know what all 44,000 peaks look like, and we don't know which peaks occur and which co-occur, and then how often, how long do they stay with you, and you know when does it change? So there's a lot of opportunity for using these tools. I think a big challenge is to come up with systematic approaches to take data from other sources to match up with the atomic weight and the various parts of the profile so that you know what you're measuring. It helps us discover new chemicals, new metabolites, things that we never thought were in a causal chain for a particular disease or a particular exposure. But it also will give us a lot of data to play with, in a sense, to discover the co-occurring relationships of our soup of chemical exposures in a way that we weren't able to do before. Now, many of these peaks may be due to air pollution or um, things that are in your consumer products, but they may also just be due to your natural endogenous metabolites that occur through you know, microbiome metabolism or um, uh, taking certain medications or eating certain foods. And there needs to be a lot of work in the field of metabolomics that helps us tailor that to exposome characterization so that we know what we're measuring and we're not misattributing certain effects of exposure to things that we not can't necessarily control or do something or doesn't help us in understanding the causal web of the disease you're interested in. So I, I was trying to show you this trajectory, and it sort of goes back and forth, but we have new tools for multi-analyte exposure assessment in our sensors. We can integrate sources of big data on temporal and spatial variability uh, from satellite data, from um, a variety of different things. We want to integrate the internal and the external exposome response. So we want to look at biological pathways, again, from endogenous metabolism, but also from changes that may occur from external. And then we want to do research to see how these new measures actually work in our epidemiology studies. And do they do a better job than the classical ways that we expose things? Just because we have new tools and we can generate new data doesn't mean we get better or more precise results. We have to see if that's actually the case. This stuff isn't cheap. Do we need to invest in this new technology and this new approach if we're doing the same or less well than what we have been doing for years with, with traditional um, methods? So that's a big question out there. But I hope that we would see improvement in precision and uh, reduction in misclassification and our ability to really um, identify characteristics of exposure in population studies using some of these new tools. So the exposome um, is an idea whose time has come. I just read a newsletter uh, last week that said, well, it came, and it's been around for 10 years. And I had to sort of laugh because I thought, well, when, when did we sort of start thinking about exposome? But it was actually back in 2005 when NIEHS had a meeting um, as part of the, an initiative on exposure uh, excuse me, genes, environment, and health that we did jointly with the Genome Institute. And it was right after that meeting that Chris Wilde wrote his first paper giving this idea a new name. But this characterization of exposure integrated in our body is something that was sort of born about 10 years ago. So that made me sort of sad because, you know, what have we done in 10 years? Is it enough? And it seems like each time we develop something new in a new paradigm, we have so many more questions that we need to address before we can say we can start using it. So I'll talk a little bit about that. So look at all these things that we need to measure if we want to truly characterize the lifetime exposure. And Chris Weil's definition was truly from birth to grave. You know, it was really the lifespan of exposure. So there are, um, you know, biological markers and lots of new tools. Many of you are using these to for looking at how they relate to disease risk. But I want you to now take all of that work that you're doing and think about how exposures to priority chemicals might change how those, um, those markers change over time, because that's the world we live in. They, they are already affected and modified by environment in some way in the work that you're doing with disease. Sensors, imaging, um, uh, both at the individual level and higher. There's behavioral work that needs to be incorporated in here that some people suggest that there should be a 
stress exposome or a behavioral exposome to not forget about the social science characterization of our environment and the social determinants of health, we agree that that's very, very important. And these are sort of the generalized domains of the exposome. So you can see that if you were really to truly characterize every single one of these things, it would be quite a challenge and it would create data challenges that like, I can't even wrap my head around. So we need smart people to think about how to integrate these various streams of data so that we can use it effectively for exposure assessment. And again, exposure measurements over time. As I said earlier, we usually only measure this once. It's all we can afford. It's all we can think about. Sometimes the windows for our studies are very narrow. The longitudinal nature might be two years, three years, five years. But we're really talking about early life all the way to when that adult disease forms. You need multiple measures of exposure because it does change over time. So we are trying at NIEHS to advance a more comprehensive uh, creation of the exposome concept. We need a common language to think about this exposure assessment, and we need standards and ways to um, uh, um, add metadata to our uh, data set so that when you're looking in a discovery data set, you know exactly what that exposure means and how it was collected and what the protocols were and the references, or it's not going to be of much value to you. Uh, we want to incorporate exposure assessment into the exposure, exposome science, so we don't want people who do have done traditional exposure assessment to feel disenfranchised and not be part of this new wave. That's why there is a role for using the targeted analysis in a productive way, but to go beyond that one chemical, one disease framework. Utilizing big data, and I know you have a, a really uh, important quantitative program here with bioinformatics. We need your minds to wrap around all of this data related to exposome and to help us characterize how to store it, how to share it, how to save it, and how to analyze it. What, is that, what are those variables going to look like in your analysis within the epidemiologic framework? Uh, I don't think we really know that yet. And then we need to train. So think about incorporating into your, your curriculum in data science the exposome. It's a great case study, and there's a lot of work for your students to, for, for the students who are here in this room and for other students to become engaged, and we need all of the smart minds around this. And then to translate this, so how do we talk to the public about your exposome? It's hard to speak about even a single chemical and have people understand to now raise this up to another level is very, very challenging. So as I said, we're doing a lot of work. Uh, it's in our, in our strategic plan. I welcome all of you to participate in our webinar series for the Exposome projects, um, and that's a great thing. So in the last few minutes, I want to talk about new resources that will be available to the scientific community to um, improve exposure assessment and um, to bring free exposure assessment. I said free. Look at you all looking at me now, <laughs> focusing. That's really great. Uh, ways to, um, to really add uh, value to the studies that you're already doing and taking them to the next level. So we were beneficiaries of some money this last year uh, from redirection of funds from the National Children's Study, which shut down after a decade. And we've created what we're calling the Children's Health Exposure Analysis Research, or the CHEER program. And our goals here are to add exposure assessment along the lines of what I've been talking about in all research studies that are about children's health outcomes. So if you're a researcher that has a study population and you have biospecimens and you're looking at a particular childhood disease and you have not considered the physical and chemical environment in your causal web, now's your opportunity to get consultative expertise from toxicologists and epidemiologists to choose the specimens wisely, to create the hypotheses, and then you will get resources for measuring exposures from this uh, centralized research network. So these are the um, institutions. We have six labs that will be in our network, and you can see there's a very long list of things that will be now available. Uh, we're really, really excited about this opportunity. We, we look at the target audience to be uh, people who are already working in children's environmental health. Obviously, you've already done some exposure assessments in your work, and I know each of you have wished you had more money to do more and to do some of the methodologic work that's required to understand the exposure trajectories. So here's an opportunity to do that. 
Those of you who are pediatricians or work in the children's health field in any other way, again, if you haven't considered something like allergens or something like um, metals as part of the causal web, now's the time to think about it because there will be these resources available for you. Uh, I really would like to think that the, the children's environmental health community here at Dartmouth can be brokers for us at NIEHS to meet with and discuss these opportunities to help get the rest of the pediatric research community here at Dartmouth excited about the possibility and help us spread the word about this resource. So it, we also have a data repository and analysis center. Um, there'll be a repository for the data that's generated through the CHEER resource. That's our, uh, our approach to trying to um, share and um, incentivize discovery. Everybody who submits a specimen for targeted analysis will also have untargeted analysis done. It's part of the package. We want to create a stream of exposome data, and we want to have that data be available to coalesce with the data you have already collected in your studies and for you to be used. And we want people to be able to play around in the exposome data part of the resource to help us develop the statistical methods we need to help us answer and discover new questions with that. So this data center will not only have the repository, it will create an easy workspace, a collaborative space for people who want to analyze. There'll be ways for you to upload da other data to it or to take your data back to your centers uh, to use it. And we'll also have statistical methods and tools built in there, and we'll also have statisticians, toxicologists, and epidemiologists available through the network between the coordinating center and the statistical center to actually work with you to help you use the data that's generated. So anyway, as you can tell, I really, was really excited about that opportunity, a very unique opportunity. NIEHS has never really been in this kind of um, resource position, and um, we hope that when, since we built it, you will come. <laughs> so in my last few minutes, I just want to say how, talk a little bit about how we need to uh, use the information that we're generating from these studies and put it back in our clinical practice. So, you know, translational research is out there. You guys are doing a lot of work in translational research in the fields of cancer and other areas. There's a, a movement towards personalized medicine. There'll be a very large personal medicine initiative, cohorts, we hope, next year developed, uh, both for adult medicine and then there'll be a, uh, another activity for children's work as well. You know, clinicians hear from their patients all the time, why did I get this disease? What in my environment caused it? How can I protect myself? And how can I protect my children from getting what I have just had? And um, so I think we as an institute have tried hard, but are not 100% successful in letting physicians know that there's a lot of resources out there about environmental causes of disease that we would like you to take advantage of and not be afraid of having that conversation with your patients and, and to, to direct them to places that have information that can give you recommendations. This is why we put our, these translational cores in some of our big programs to help do that. Uh, risk communication strategies uh, are tough, talking to patients about preventing environmental uh, exposures and environmentally related diseases because of the uncertainty, because of some fear, because of this lack of control. Well, you know, we can't regulate this out of our environment. How am I going to be able to take control of my environment and make those kinds of changes? But more and more clinical societies are willing to stand up and say the environment is important and should become part of the clinical practice. The American Academy of Pediatrics has always been there. They have built resources. They're on their third edition of their handbook. Um, pediatricians and nurse practitioners and people who are on the front lines as primary care physicians really have an important role to play uh, there. The, uh, Recently, the uh, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecologists and the American Society for Reproductive Medicine have made very strong statements about reducing exposures during the pregnancy window, window of gestation. And just this last week, there was an international group that joined together in, I don't know, 17 countries or something like that um, to also promote this uh, as, as a concept and try to take not just the proclamation of this as a fact, but to take it and give 
the practitioners that are part of these societies the tools that they need to have those conversations with their patients and to think about this as they're treating people for whatever the health, uh, well, either well care or disease-related care that they have. So I'm just going to end with a laundry list of resources. Uh, be happy for, I think this goes up on a website, so you'll be able to go back and see these resources. A lot of these are uh, patient-friendly or general public-friendly resources. Some of them are um, available for, for health providers to educate themselves. Uh, the Pediatric Environmental Specialty Unit in Boston is a regional center for helping with environmental diseases, especially in children, a consultative group. Um, I said that these federal reports that I mentioned, they're really, you know, the, we write these reports, we have these committees, they go up on the shelves, but there's actually quite a bit of interesting information about research agenda building, the state of the science in these reports, especially in the breast cancer one. Um, and, and, and again, the NIEHS, uh, we hope, will be a resource to you um, around any of these questions in the future. Um, always feel free to reach out to me or to my staff in terms of uh, helping you be successful with your research careers, with uh, finding support, but also any other resources in the field of environmental health. And with that, I'll end, and I hope that I have conveyed my enthusiasm for the opportunities here and that you guys... Um, that will help you in the work that you all, the very important work that you all do. Thank you. And I'm happy to answer any questions or just uh, facilitate a conversation among yourselves about the things that I talked about. Celia. I have a question. So I'm not a biomedical scientist, but I have often been wondering about this whole issue of chemicals and the sources of them and Tosca, and I wondered how all of this with NIEHS, and we know that these chemicals are being generated you know, by lots of different industries, and yet it's very hard to control the source. How much does the advice of NIEHS and all of the all that we know about environmental chemicals feed back on source? Like, or is it mostly, you know, like you were saying, we know they're out there. Is there, is there any um, sort of research translation going back to, you know, sources? Yeah, so, I mean, I th you think you raise a really important issue related to the source of the chemical, and I, if I could take it one step further, as a source of uh, exposure reduction and your ability to control that, either through policy or through um, personal behavior or societal change. Um, and, and I think there's a tension, okay? So a lot of what I described is advances in technology that take us to exposure assessment methodologies that take us further away from source, right? So if you get an indicator of your exposome, let's say it's on a numerical scale from one to 100, I'm just making this up, and your scale is 75, and you figure out that there's some clinical meaning to that, how does that help you protect yourself from the exposures that you have in your environment? And this is a really important ethical question, it's a societal question, and it's a, it's a technology, you know, research rigor question. So one of the things is, is if, if Turning our exposure assessment into, into some other um, more precise way helps us do studies where we have more certainty about these odds ratios or relative risks of impact of the exposure. That's a plus, right? Because then we can translate with more certainty that we feel comfortable that we know this is cause and effect, which has been a big barrier, right? But it's not enough. Right? So you put out there that you think this soup of chemicals raises your risk, but you don't have enough granularity in that analysis to work at the local level to take that out. So that's where I think that some of the community-based participatory research methodologies really help you identify sources, help you con identify concerns, and then you can take this hopefully in the future more precise outcome data and bring that back into the communities and empower them to feel like they can make a difference. And we know they can. 
from the work that we do in our environmental public health programs, we know that empowering communities with information, you know, raising environmental health literacy, makes people very strong advocates at the local level, in front of planning boards, you know, in, in the schools, in asking for curriculum modifications to the STEM curriculum so that their children understand this. And then also they want concrete recommendations for understanding how how they shop, how they use chemicals, how they interact with their world. So it, it, you need both, you know, and in the future, I think we have to concentrate on how we move from a more integrated concept of the environment, but not forget the individual recommendations that we need for the public health protection. It was a long-winded answer, but. Yes. Uh, in, in the context, of, I mean, in, in the context of screening, I mean, the genome, the proteome, these are common types of molecules, and there's high throughput technology. But it seem like for the exposome, these could be divergent types of molecules. And I wonder if you talk a little about the Cheetah programs available analytes. Are those a multiplex assay? Are these individual assays? No. So these are individual laboratories and individual assays. So they bring their best methodologies to the table for exposure. And when a laboratory can measure multiple things in a run of something, which is sort of the, meta, the metabolomics model, they will, you know, they, they have proposed those, it's been reviewed, they, we will approach that. But that wasn't the strategy. We weren't looking for labs who could measure everything, you know, in a single run using a, a singular method because there's so many differences in these chemical compounds and the classes and the level of detection, et cetera. That, that, so the, it's, it's the, the challenge is to take the data coming from different analytic methods and putting them together in databases that you can figure out cumulative indexes of exposure that make some sense. And there's not enough thought. In, in the environmental health world on, on how to do that. And I'm not sure if there are other clinical or um, lifestyle factor, you know, reduction or statistical methods that we could import or whether this is a brand new uh, field that we need to develop de novo. It's still a point where you, you really have to choose what you're going to assay for. There's no truly unbiased screen for the exposome. Oh. Right. Right. If it was simple, we would have done it a long time ago. <laughs> At least in my career history. Yeah. One of the challenges looking down this list is the way you take samples and the way you preserve samples is yes. really different for the different things on this list. Yep. Is one of the outcomes of this exercise going to be best practices for the fewest ways of preserving samples? Right. Well, I think. Right. So there are quite a number of initiatives um, around uh, biorepositing, you know, that's really focused on the best collection technology and, you know, preserving. What we're starting with here is um, reaching out to, to studies that have extant biobanks. Do we know that something that's been in the freezer for 20 years is actually going to give us a valid answer? No, we don't. We start from the premise that we think we can get good data, but in the first year of proficiency testing and sample uh, integrity, there's a lot of work um, to do that. And that's really true for all of these other initiatives that NIH is thinking about, which take the synthetic cohort approach. So we believe that the biobanks that we've built around the world are going to serve us forever, but we can't lose sight that we have to continue to monitor and test and make sure that our samples will be able to give us the data at that new level of resolution with the new technology because we collected them a long time ago. For the CHEER program, you know, we start, we'll start, I think, monitoring, marketing to people who already have samples. If you're in a data collection phase in your study and you needed to measure something in brand new samples, we will take that as well and work with the fresh. But clearly, yes, you're right. There are things on here that only fresh will do. So there will only be some studies that will be able to take advantage of that. Carmen. I guess when, along those lines, it's, it's, there's still a need for new studies, too. I mean, although we can try to make use of our biobanks right. for a lot, especially as we think about, you know, get rid of one of these exposures and it's just replaced with another one, and we want to think about then what's the next problem, there's still going to be that need. And, and hopefully, like, some of these untargeted approaches will be able to address some of that, because they'll... You know, right, so for the new... 
for the new studies, we need to start thinking about what those collections might be, how we ask the questions, using common data elements, the, you know, and, the, and what role should NIEHS play in setting those standards that should, you know, hopefully would be accepted throughout the community. I think you all need to be in that dialogue about what those, those studies look like in the future and what we can learn I mean, maybe, maybe everything we've already collected is just a test bed to see if it works. And then once we figure out the exposome, that would be the new standard and we'd have that all moving forward. Chris. I was just thinking, you know, with these, uh, like, when monitors become commercially available, um, I, I think people's behaviors might change very dramatically. And it seems like an opportunity to sort of study the impact that that would have. And so I guess part of the question here is like, uh, is there, you know, thought about partnering with a company or, you know, to try and look at what happens when mm -hmm. we're unleashed with a new technology. Right. So I totally agree. And I think that we um, already have some experience with the, um, you know, the Actograph Fitbit technology, I'm using proprietary language here, I realize there are several of those kinds of sensors out there. But, you know, that, that people are changing their behaviors because they're looking at how many steps they take. And, and you know, we're, we're accepting that as a very positive public health prevention focused thing. And so what are the factors? What are the reasons there? And are those different than understanding what your environment has to offer you at a given moment in time or over a weekend or, or over a week. You know, there's, um, I know I'm familiar, there's some initiatives across the country where they're gonna be censoring, <laughs> in a different way, you know, putting sensors in cities, you know, at various intersections, places, and you know, for, for much more concentrated air pollution monitoring and other things that are of interest to the community. You know, how, how will those communities change in their, uh, use of public space and, and, and that they, these are amazing opportunities to study the interface between the behavioral factors and the chemical or environmental factors. And NIEHS welcomes that kind of work. Absolutely. And we have partnered and to have these discussions with like the Office of Behavioral and Social Science Research. I'm sure the National Cancer Institute in their cancer control work is quite interested in these kinds of things. So those are frameworks that environmental scientists can use to build these questions. Look at that. <laughs>